You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Pretty, it's kind of a tricky class to teach, especially to parents. Um, but here, the, the, the point I'm going to want to get across today with this class is that, um, is that we tend to misunderstand what our child's deepest problem is at the spiritual level, at the deepest spiritual level. And we tend, uh, as a result of that, if you get, um, if you misunderstand human nature, you misunderstand um, your child's deepest problem, uh, then it's going to mess up and distort your entire system of the way you kind of approach them or relate to them. I want to say that this class is not a uh, this is cl- this class is going to be kind of high on theory and it's going to be kind of low on practice. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of thing where it's not uh, it could be kind of tempting to uh, kind of call everything you do into question and um, so on and so forth. So I don't intend to do that. But I do just kind of want to give a very, very foundational explanation of what Scripture has to say about what, what the human problem is. Um, and, and, and that helps us to kind of approach our kids um, in, in the best way, best way possible. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. All right, uh, Father, thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness. Um, thank you that you've made yourself known to us in your word and in the person of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, for your grace that, um, that you are a God for people who don't have it all together and people who fail and um, people who lose their temper and uh, people who just really don't care that much about you, but you still really, really love us. And uh, Lord, I pray that your grace would reign supreme in this class. I pray you'd help me to teach. This is just it's kind of tricky. And so I need the help of your Holy Spirit and ask you to pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, okay, I want to open up with three stories. Um, and all these stories are going to kind of meant to capture, paint a picture of what you call a theology of glory, um, which is the natural way that most people kind of think about the world. It's, it's kind of the basis for all world religions, all philosophies, except for Christianity. Which Christianity is based on a theology of the cross. And so uh, story number one, um, I, uh, I saw a teacher, a former teacher of mine, who's still a teacher in the, in the school system uh, in Mountain Brook, and she came up to me and she said, man, you need to do some classes about cheating because uh, there are so many kids who, at school who cheat. And so in your youth group, I think you all should do a series about cheating. Okay? Story number one. Story number two. Now, these stories are going to get a little more kind of disappointing and uh, shocking. Um, this is from a youth ministry forum uh, online that I was on. Someone posed the question, you know, there are some, I was talking about pornography in my youth group, and I said, if anyone wants to talk about it, uh, you know, I, I just want you to know that I'm a safe person you can talk to if you're struggling with pornography. And so uh, he, the person asked, well, a couple of the boys took me up on this offer, so now wh- what do I do? <laughs> like, oh, crud, right? And so this is one of the responses on the forum. I'm going to say this is not a good response. Uh, it's, not, it's not like the worst thing in the world, but it kind of misses the mark. It says, 
In working with teenage guys in this area, I have also tried to point them to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew where Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think this helps guys understand the gravity of their sin and the seriousness of the sin in God's eyes. Okay, So he's operating with this presumption that the problem is uh, for these boys who, a, a boy who's saying to the youth pastor, I have a problem with youth ministry, the problem is that they don't understand how bad it is to look at porn. And so what you need to do in that time is make sure that child who already is swimming in shame, right, who's already swimming with guilt, make sure they're ashamed enough, right? And then he goes on and he cites some other scriptures about sexual immorality. Um, And again, his premise again is the problem is that he doesn't know that what he's doing is bad, which obviously is wrong. That's not true. The child's coming to talk to youth pastor and the child is not motivated enough. So problem of education and motivation. Um, one more. Should I tell this story? Hmm. Should I? Should I tell this story? <laughs> Thanks, honey. Let's go for it. All right. I have some uh, some parents uh, in our parish. She went to a, a retreat, not sponsored by our church, of course. And um, and it was it was for dads. And the speaker talked about how he had caught his son, his teenage son, masturbating. And his, his response, and he told the dads, this was my response, and he recommended this response, was, I told my son if I ever caught him doing that again, uh, that he would be kicked out of the house. Yeah, okay? Um, these are all people who are um, relating to their children from what we call a theology of glory. Theology of glory. And so um, the, the map of what we're going to talk about here is we're going to talk about a theology of glory. Uh, we're going to talk about a theology of the cross. And then we're going to talk about the Gospels, the antidote, we're talking about some applications. And um, with, uh, within that, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, which Genesis chapter 3 is, is the fall of man. And Genesis chapter 3 gives us like a very um, deep insight into the nature of humanity post-fall, post-sin. Uh, and that, that kind of uh, conceptual understanding of mankind, you see consistently carried out throughout all the Bible. Um, so, Theology of Glory. Um, this is a quote from a book uh, called On Being a Theologian of the Cross by Gerhard Faraday, which is very, very popular in this church. In fact, um, it is continuing to be published largely because of sales out of the Church of the Advent. <laughs> that's actually true. Um, but, anyhow, um, but anyhow, so there's the, the quote is this, and this is a description of Theology of Glory. It says, The most common overarching story we tell about ourselves is what we will call the glory story. We came from glory and we are bound for glory. Of course, in between we seem somehow to have gotten derailed, whether by design or accident, we're not quite sure, but that is only a temporary inconvenience to be fixed by proper religious effort. What we need is to get back on the glory road. The story is told in countless variations. Usually the subject of the story is the soul. So basically a theology of glory, this is the narrative of theology of glory um, as it pertains to human nature. Um, we're generally uh, pretty good, we're flawed, and we're kind of on our way. Uh, we're intended to be happy and for life to kind of be nice and to be pleasant and to be comfortable. And yeah, sometimes we, you know, we mess up. We make mistakes along the way. Um, but, you know, 
but you know, when we kind of remind ourselves of, of the right things, and then when we are properly motivated, we get back on the right path and we keep on going. Uh, so in the theology of glory, like I said, it is not, um, it's, 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 you know, it's kind of humanity's narrative. But it also is co-opted probably in most of the church. Like, I don't mean to be throwing shade, but like Joel Osteen is like a classic example of theology of glory. Um, I, you know, I think Joel Osteen's a Christian. Um, Joel Osteen, I think, really, you know, it seems like he really uh, proclaims having a relationship with Jesus. And that's really good. But at the end of the day, when you listen to Joel Osteen, you know, it's kind of like God's intention for you is to have the most comfortable, happy, wealthy, healthy life possible. And like, if you make mistakes, um, if you make mistakes, you know, that's kind of aberrant. That kind of is, deviates from the norm. We just need to be reminded of, of the right thing to do and just do those things, right? Um, a good, another good example is a uh, pastor who is kind of one of these scandalous stories. who's the head of the like National Association of Evangelicals, Ted Haggard, and he was, um, you know, he was this megachurch pastor, very, very popular, written a lot of books, and they found that he had a double life. Um, that he uh, was he was caught soliciting male prostitutes and also soliciting drugs from male prostitutes. And so in his response, it's very, very sad. And what's even sadder is in his response, he said, you know, that's just 1% of me. That's just 1% of me. Like, you know the other 99% of me. And the other 99% of me is good. There's just that 1% of me. So anyhow, in all of this, um, what we see is that theology of glory, um, particularly as co-opted into Christianity, is just totally misses the mark on what the Bible has to say about mankind. Um, and this is not, look, I don't want to, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to come off like the, uh, the person in, in story number two. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, just be honest, like, uh, the Bible talks about how incredibly valuable mankind is. I mean, how much God loves and cherishes mankind to the point, um, that he's constantly looking to redeem. He's sending his son to die for mankind. And he also makes mankind in his image, which means that mankind is sacred, um, and if you've read the Bible, um, the Bible is the story of human failure. I mean, it is, uh, it's, I don't know if any of you tried to read like the real Bible to a young child. Like my four-year-old was like, I don't want to read this Jesus storybook Bible. I want to read the real thing, you know? And so I'm like, hey, we'll read First Samuel. It's got a lot of good stories. And I'm like, okay, well, all right. So he's got six wives and um, uh, I'm going to just maybe gloss over this part where everyone in the village gets their head cut off. And uh, I mean, there's just like so much darkness and there's so much violence and there's so much failure. I mean, like, you know, the, the nation of Israel, the whole Old Testament's about the nation of Israel. And it's like, they are, they like kind of abide by God's will for like half a year or like half a second. And then they're just tail spinning. If you ever read like first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, I mean, first and second Samuel, the stories of all the leaders of Israel, it's like, you know, just human failure after human failure after human failure. If you read the prophets, it's the prophets saying like, Israel, you're screwing up again. And then you get to the New Testament and you read about the disciples. And I mean, these are not like these wonderful, heroic, meritorious people. Like these are people who continually mess up. And so, you know, this like, you only know one, you only know, you, that, that's just 1% of me. You know, 99% of me is really okay. Like that is just that's completely inconsistent with what the Bible has to say. And so, and so, by the way, it's really freeing. It's very freeing when you kind of own this because this idea of like, I have to be perfect or I have to be impressive or I have to put on this air that I've got it all together. It just like takes all the air out of that balloon um, because you're kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm a sinner. Like I screw up a lot. Like 
True confession, I definitely said a really bad word in front of my two-year-old this morning. <laughs> I was really mad, I was really mad, and I dropped one, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to teach a Sunday school class, <laughs> and my wife is going to be in that Sunday school class, she was a witness to it, and I'm the biggest hypocrite in the entire world, but like, no fake in the funk here, I'm, I am, uh, yeah, I, I am failing all the time. Okay, so with that being said, looking at Theology of Glory, there you yeah, good little picture there of Theology of Glory. Um, going to the next one. Um, I've already read that quote. And now Genesis 3. Um, looking at Genesis chapter 3, you're going to kind of see that mankind's biggest problem um, is that mankind wants to live outside of relationship with God, and mankind wants to be his or her own God. We want to be the Lord of our own life. We want to be independent um, and the person who calls the shots and live out our own power. So, um, so to read Genesis chapter 3, which is going to kind of be the anchor of this class. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, may, we may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of good, of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took it, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God said, called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And he said, I heard the sound. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry, guys. Um, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Uh, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, so this is kind of the foundation. But looking, um, looking, here, um, looking here at the promise uh, that the enemy makes, the lie that he tells them is, uh, you will not die, uh, and God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he, he starts out um, impugning, impugning God's character. The first lie he tells them is God is not good, you can't trust him. The second lie he tells them is that you don't need God. Like, you can be your own God, okay? So that is kind of, that is the foundational lie that Adam and Eve believe, um, yeah, so there you see the two lies. And so the, the two lies, what they lead to is a life of independence, a life where we live uh, without a relationship with God and a life where we kind of take matters into our own hands and we trust in ourselves. Uh, we can't trust God anyhow because he's against us, right? He has all these rules and he's, you know, and all these bad things have happened in my life and so on and so forth. So I cannot trust him. And... Um, hey, I, I think I'm generally okay on my own, right? So that's kind of, and so that leads to a life of independence, right? That's the kind of the nature. And so the, the theology of glory, here's what the theology of glory misses. Um, the first thing the theology of glory misses is the effects of the fall. Uh, theology of glory, you know, doesn't 
doesn't get a sense of just how devastating Adam and Eve's sin in the garden are on our human nature. Does anybody know what happens in Genesis 4, the next story after the fall? It is Cain and Abel. And in Cain and Abel, in that story, a brother kills another brother. And that, that story is not just arbitrarily put there. I mean, there, you, there are plenty of time passes between the fall and Cain and Abel uh, because, you know, they're like, they're, li- they're actually, there's like a, a population. Those aren't the only two people, in, you know, those aren't like Adam and Eve's only two children. There's been enough time that, you know, they've had children, you've had children, so on and so forth. Um, it's put there to show just how devastating the effects of the fall are. Um, because you've got one brother killing another brother because other brother got a little more affirmation from mom and dad. Um, human nature. It understands human nature as flawed, but pretty good. Uh, and then human capability. Th- I would say this is probably the biggest the biggest kind of misunderstanding um, on, in terms of uh, in terms of theology of glory is that you know basically human, humanity is somewhat limited but generally capable. We get tripped up, but we generally should expect the best. And I'm not talking about human capability in like the realm of science and mathematics and technology. Like humanity is pretty amazing in those realms. I'm talking more about our ability to be the kind of be people that God calls us to be. Like to be, to be, you know, people of perfect character. To be great parents who never lose their temper. Um, to you know, to be the the husband who like washes the dishes every night, you know, um, to, you know, to be the not non-judging of other people, to be generous to the poor, to, uh, you know, to be careful about what we say about other people, you know, and as I kind of start listing this more and more, it's kind of like this continual indictment of like, oh yeah, maybe, hmm, maybe I'm not that capable because I know I know that I'm not supposed to lose my temper in front of my children. I know that I'm not supposed to lose my temper when someone's driving really slow in front of me. You know, I know these things, and yet I continue to do them. Um, and so with that being said, the theology of glory looks at sin at the behavioral level. It just sees, you know, sin as like doing bad things. And so as a result of that, all if you view your child through a theology of glory, then all you're going to do is try to modify behavior. That's going to be the extent of what you try to do, and that doesn't really effectuate lasting change uh, for the long term in a child's heart. Um, and by the way, we're going to talk about this in a minute. I know like, I've got an uh, almost three-year-old and an almost five-year-old, and so obviously you are kind of dealing at the behavioral level. Like, Hutch, you can't run in the road, and that's just all there is to it. You know, We don't need to get into the theological underpinnings of why you can't run into the road. You just can't run in the road, and if you do, you're getting a pop. Um, you know, so anyhow, so with that being said, a theology of glory... Um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get over this. Then um, yeah, I will stay here. I'm just going to gloss over it. But a theology of glory then will view God's law as a ladder, as like the, you know the, the the rules that God lays out, the way we're supposed to live that are laid out in the Bible. The theologian of glory is going to view it as just a ladder. They're going to view the Bible as just a way to be a better person, um, and that is that is flows out of a flawed understanding of human capability. Uh, and, and over um, the, you know, just how deep our problem with sin is and the nature of our sin. Um, and also, too, one other thing is theology of glory just really doesn't have a category for pain and suffering. Uh, see, you know, pain and, with pain and suffering, that, that's like, ooh, that's, that's outside of God's realm. Like, that's not supposed to happen. Like, if we're really doing the right things, then things are going to kind of go our way, right? Um, and so when bad things happen, a theology of glory kind of falls apart. Uh, so with that being said... Um, the theology of ministry for a, the- a theologian of glory is this. 
education, motivation, perspiration. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm really, I'm, I'm really into youth ministry. Obviously, I've done it for 13 years, and um, and I wrote, uh, I wrote the introduction to this book called Gospel Centered Youth Ministry, and I talk about how basically. Um, Youth ministry has operated under a theology of glory. And I don't know, some of you have various youth ministry experiences from growing up, but most people, what their youth ministry experience was, was like, you come, and there's some games, it's fun, and then they give you some really high-pressure talks about not having premarital sex, and not drinking underage, and being nice. Uh, and then they play some emotionally driven music, usually light the fire, and, uh, you know, to basically kind of like, Get you out the door, like excited about God. So this week we're not going to get anyone pregnant, you know, uh, and we're not going to get a DUI, you know. And so basically it was all, you know, it was all driven by this false understanding of like the problem of sin. It's like here, the problem with the kids is the kids don't know they're not supposed to have premarital sex and that, you know, they're not supposed to be, you know, stealing liquor out of their parents' liquor cabinet. And if we just tell them, if we just tell the kids not to do it, they're going to, you know, they're going to do it, you know. And, but here's the thing, is you've got to have, they've got to be motivated enough. And so, hmm, how do we motivate them? Well, we um, make them feel real guilty, and we scare them, and we talk about consequences, and we maybe exaggerate the consequences, you know? One of the great, I don't know why I'm telling you all this, maybe it's because I'm teaching sex ed this afternoon, but one of the real flaws in sex education for youth ministry is that people for years told kids that sex doesn't feel good. Like, if you have sex, it is not going to feel good. And then a kid has sex, and they're like, this like, feels better than anything I've ever experienced in my life, you know? And so they're like, their credibility is shot. And so I remember going to this workshop, and the first thing this woman said was, don't tell kids it doesn't feel good and it's not fun, because that's just generally, for the most part, in you know, 999 out of 1,000 cases is not true. Um, so anyhow, so with all that being said, um, with all that being said, I kind of use that example of hopefully, uh, hopefully that you didn't have this experience, but you probably did, of like bad youth ministry is the great example of, um, of a theology of glory. And what we, uh, a theological term for that is just law, like law-driven ministry. It's just operating under the law. Um, it's dependent upon human effort and it's dependent upon human knowledge of the rules. Okay, so, um, hey Knox. So uh, going on, so turning the page here, uh, uh, we're going to a theology. We're going to go to a theology of the cross. And and by the way, I think if there's nothing else, if there's if there's maybe nothing else that could come out of this for you as a parent, um, it could be that perhaps it can and it can give us a level of patience um, with our um, our children and their bad behavior, because you know we really want our kids to be polite. You know we don't want them to throw tantrums. We want our kids to be law-abiding citizens and to be kind and to not cheat and all these kind of things, right? Um, and so when they're acting out and when they're frustrating us like crazy with their terrible behavior, if nothing else, we can kind of say there's not a quick fix to this. You know, there's not a quick fix to this. I can't just like snap my finger, give them a few techniques and it's solved. Like this is the overhaul uh, and the transformation of a person's heart, you know? And so, like, when you, whenever, whenever you get the news that there's something really bad has happened, you know there's no, like, quick fix. You know there's kind of, you got to have the long view. And that's kind of the view we've got to have with our kids because their sin and their bad behavior does not flow out of a lack of knowledge and a lack of effort, um, for the most part. Uh, it generally flows out of their sin nature. And so, uh, you know, 
that being transformed, that, that, that takes time. So anyhow, so now we move to the theology of the cross. And um, I'm, I'm so talented with graphic design, as you can see here. But this is supposed to be a cross. Um, this is supposed to be a cross here. And so this is a, this is a really helpful framework um, to see that, um, a really helpful framework uh, to kind of think about both God and man. Because so the cross tells us that um, God is so holy and so just that he um, that he he must deal with every act of sin, and he is so committed to that justice and holiness that he would deal with all of it on his son. So it amplifies just how holy and how just God is. It also amplifies just how loving and merciful God is. Like God so desires to be in relationship with mankind, he loves mankind so much that he would be willing to let his son die on the cross and, and bear that sin, the punishment of that sin, because he wants to be in relationship with us so much. So he's both so holy and he's so loving. On the, second, uh, on the, on the other side, um, mankind's problem, like our problem with sin and our need is so deep uh, that you know, God, God doesn't just like send down a little letter from heaven. Like God himself in the person of Jesus Christ has to come to earth has to live a perfect life on our behalf, and he has to die on the cross for us. Like that is a huge problem. Okay, and so it reminds us whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or for three months. Like our need is so so deep, uh, and so the cross reminds us of that. How much we need God's grace. It also reminds us we're so loved and we're so valuable to God um, that He would die on the cross for us. And so, with that being said, you see that. In the theology of the cross, like Jesus is at the center of the solution. Jesus is, is entirely at the center of the solution. So, hey, if you need me to do that, I can do that if you want to. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I, I got it. It's all good. So, anyhow, so with that being said, here is is kind of the difference in how a theology of cross views human nature versus a um, theology of glory. The theology of the cross is going to look at our problem with sin from a theological position. Um, it's not just going to see the behavior. The behavior is definitely there. I mean, that's you can look at sin at a behavioral level, like violating God's law. You can look at sin at a relational level, being separated from God. And you can look at sin at a theological level, which is basically it's our attempt to be our own Savior and our own Lord. Um, and we see that with Adam and Eve, because Adam and Eve, the, you know, the lie that they buy, um, let me get over that, yeah. The lie that they buy is you can be like God and you don't need him. He, and you can't trust him anyhow. And so you see that manifested in their behavior. You know, what is the what is the first thing that Adam and Eve do? It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and, and she took of its fruit and ate it. So you can see that initially she was when she, they, they begin this conversation, Eve says, no, no, no. God said, I can't do that. And so in that moment, she is un, she is operating under God's authority. She's saying, God said this, and we're not supposed to do that. But then she buys the lie, and the first evidence of this is when it says that when she saw the fruit was pleasing to her eye. So now she is autonomous. She is her own God. She's determining what's good and what's not good, what she can do and what she can't do. She's doing that independently. And so, um, and so she says, you know what? Actually, I determine that eating from that tree is good, and so I'm going to do that. So anyhow, so you see that first evidence. Then you see that after um, after they eat, um, they go and they know that they're naked. And the, then they, their response to that 
is they sewed fig leaves together and they made, them, and they made themselves loincloths. So this nakedness is not about not having clothes. Uh, it's about their shame. Like they know they've done something wrong. They know that they've broken communion with God. They know that there's a problem. And so their response is not to go to God and say, God, like we have blown it. Like, please help us fix this. They try to fix it on their own. They try to take matters into their own hands. And so then when God comes into the garden, they run. They hit the road because they bought the lie that God's not good. And so they're, they're trying to get away from they They don't believe that he's merciful, that he's forgiving, that they can trust him. So they're trying to avoid relationship and communion with God. And so anyhow, so we can see, um, so we can see like the theological nature of sin. And so consequently, um, theology of the cross says the effects of the fall are severe. Uh, and and the, the, the Cain and Abel story immediately following um, is you know, evidence of that, but also the fact that God says like, you're, you'll, you'll end up dying, like you're going to die um, as a result of this. And so, um, and so uh, theology of the cross has a, has a low view of human capability. Ephesians chapter 2 um, describes like, human nature. It says that uh, it talks about us like, pre-Christ. Uh, it says, you know, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. So, like, basically, you have no capability apart from the grace of God. You have no capability apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, in, in the spiritual and moral realm. Um, so anyhow, so it's a very, very, it's a much more pessimistic view of mankind than the theology of glory. But at the same time, uh, the amplification of like human sin and human need magnifies the grace of God. It magnifies the holiness of God and it magnifies the grace and mercy of God too. Um, so the two go hand in hand. Uh, so, so with that being said... Am I in the right place here? No, wrong slide. One more slide. There we go. So, with that being said, uh, theology of the cross, the view of the law, and we'll talk about this at the end a little bit, but the theology of the cross is going to view God's law first as a mirror. First as a mirror to show us our need. Like it, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, um, or sorry, uh, wait a minute. Oh, great. Yeah, Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He says that again in Galatians as well. But basically, I would never know, um, I would never know that I'm a person who has problems with anger unless the Bible told me that, like, anger's not good, right? I would never know um, that I'm judgmental unless I see this picture of the Pharisees and I'm like, ooh, huh. Maybe I'm a little self-righteous like they are, um, and so on and so forth. So before anything else, uh, the, the Bible, the, the God's law, shows us our need for God's grace. It shows us that we fall short. Um, and so that's, that's the starting point of the law um, uh, under the theology of the cross. So that's not to say that the law doesn't have uh, purposes for like protection or for moral guidance. That's a, that's a big theological debate that I'm not getting into. But no doubt about it, a function of the law in Scripture is that it shows us our need. Okay, um, I'm going to get to children in a little bit. Some of you are like, oh, this is like faith and family class, and I haven't heard him talk about children once. Um, but anyhow, uh, so with that being said, uh, God's role in pain and suffering, uh, the, you know, the theology of the cross, of course, has a category for pain and suffering because mankind is redeemed 
through the cross, like through the suffering of the God-man. Uh, and so with that being said, you know, uh, I, this can be, this can be kind of controversial, um, and it can be, or it can be misunderstood, but there's a saying, uh, that some Lutheran theologians have, what's bad is good and what's good is bad. And that's, obviously, we're not saying that, like, tragedies and things like that are good. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think we've all had this, uh, we, you know, we, none of us want our children to fail or be disappointed. Uh, and for a lot of people, for most people, for everyone pretty much, uh, we have to have some failure, whether that's moral failure or failure in school or failure in sports. We have to have some disappointment to see that, like, we really, we really need the Lord. We really need the Lord's redemption. Um, failure tends to show us our limitations. It shows that we can't live, uh, you know, can't live life on our own. It's only after the disciples betray Jesus that they're aware of, like, oh man, yeah, I, wow, He did need to come to save us. We didn't just need Him to come and like make Israel great again. Um, we needed Him to come and to to rescue us from our sins. And they're transformed people uh, when they realize that. So, yeah, in a theology of cross, the locus of control is God. Um, we're looking for the locus of control to be God. So, so the theology of cross is going to be summed up in the word repentance, in terms of like how it practically plays out in our life. Repentance, where we shift from depending on God over to depending on Christ. That's kind of, that's kind of the fundamental difference. Whereas the locus of control in our theology of glory remains with man. If you're telling a person, like, don't do this, try harder, then you're basically you're, you're saying like it's on your shoulders like you do it as opposed to saying hey look um, you uh, you're a sinner responding to that same person by yeah, you're a sinner like me and you and me we both really need God's grace like we really need God's help if we're going to be different if we're going to be different people if we're going to kind of maybe grow into the kind of people that we would that, you know that uh, we would like like to be the kind of parents the kind of uh, adults so on and so forth. Uh, that, that's, that's not going to happen by trying harder. That's only going to happen by God changing our heart um, in, in a relationship. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of right down the middle, a fundamental difference. So to finish this up, we can see in terms of the solution as like the gospel as the antidote, at the end of Genesis 3, we, you can kind of see two things. You can see first, when um, God is addressing the serpent in Genesis, chapter, in Genesis 3, 15, uh, he says... The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust shall you shall eat for the rest of the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's kind of strange, right? He's like talking to the serpent. He's talking about a woman. And out of nowhere, there's this third person masculine pronoun, the singular, um, and uh, he shall bruise your head. Well, you know, theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. This is pointing to Jesus, and he's saying he shall bruise your head. Like Jesus shall defeat you on the cross. You shall bruise his heel. So he's pointing to the future, saying like mankind, like not mankind's not going to fix you, Satan. Mankind's not going to fix the problem of sin and evil. Like that's going to be God. And we see at the end of the book. You know, we said that kind of one of the examples of uh, human independence was how Adam and Eve, how they, um, how Adam and Eve uh, tried to, you know, make uh, make loincloths for themselves. Here in verse 20, it says, "The man called his wife Eve because she was she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them." 
So we can see this this shame that comes out of their nakedness that they try to fix on their own. Like God fixes for them. God is the one who clothes them. This is God forgiving their sins. And how is it that he provides garments of skins? He has to kill an animal. And so this is kind of the precursor of this system of substitutionary atonement that we see you know, in the law, the sacrifice of animals for forgiveness of sins, that we ultimately see with Jesus on the cross. So bottom line here is like, uh, bottom line to kind of tie this in is to say that your, your solution is not more effort. It's not more education. Your solution is, is both the rescue and the grace and the help of God. Like that's your solution. That's what we want to point, that's what we want to point children to is, um, make, we want to make them aware, um, aware of their sinfulness and make them aware of God's like abounding grace and mercy, that he's someone that they can trust in relationship. He's someone they need to be in relationship. And he's actually, he's their only hope. He's really their only hope, um, for, for transformation in their own life. So, to, uh, um, so here, anyhow, sorry, this is, this is a diagram we show our kids every week in senior high. We're doing Isaiah uh, and it basically shows, you know, this diagram of the cross that I did earlier, but it shows the fruit of that is a life of trust, a life of dependence on God. Like that's what we're hoping for. I, I kind of say, I'll say to kids like, yes, we would, it would be great to see, it is great to see change in our life. You know, I would like to see myself not having such a bad temper when I drive or when I watch Alabama football games. Um, but I've been waiting for about 32 years for that to happen, and it, and it hasn't happened. Um, but we would like to see fruit in our life where we change. But a really good sign of, of like Christian maturation uh, and sanctification is you're becoming increasingly dependent on God. You're becoming increasingly dependent on the Lord. You're becoming increasingly dependent upon um, your relationship with the Lord. It's, it's interesting because I, um, uh, you know, someone asked me like, why, if, if you didn't go to church, would you go to church every week? And I said, yes. And he asked why. I said, well, one, I like it. But two, like, I just, I like really, really need it. And like, today I was kind of like finishing up some stuff, like getting this projector together and all. And I was like, I'm just going to have to, sh- I'm, I just really need to go to church really bad. Like I need, I need to kind of hear the sermon. I really need to take communion. Um, because I just, because I need it. Um, and so I would not have, I would not have, that would not have been my response when I was 16. <laughs> I would not have been like, when I was 16, I would not have said like, I need to go to church because I really need to hear the word and I really need to take the sacrament. I really need to hear about God's grace. I, I didn't want to go to church at all. And I, I was the biggest pain in the butt to my parents. Um, the, I mean the worst, uh, I would intentionally fall. I would intentionally fake like I was asleep on the front row just to embarrass them in front of the preacher. Um, so anyhow, that's your youth minister, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, um, so a good thing about theology of cross is like, it's not dependent on me being the greatest role model in the world. Um, anyhow, but I try to, I promise. No. Anyhow, um, quit talking. Uh, all right. So here, let's go on to the next slide. Let's go to application here. I got it. Okay. So applications. All right. So to, so to wrap this thing up, all right. First thing, this sounds so contradictory. This is a very different talk if I'm giving it to youth pastors as compared to parents, because, you know, as a parent, like you really do have to like teach your kids stuff, right? You really do. Oh, thanks so much. Um, I mean, you do like, you do have to teach your kids like, Hey, you say, thank you. When somebody gives you something, um, you know, you, um, you don't run out in the road. Um, you know, you don't brag about getting invited to somebody's birthday party when there may be people around you that didn't get invited. Um, and so there is a part as a parent where you really do have to teach, teach the kids the law. Um, and it is, I mean, there are, there are plenty of circumstances where lots of people 
grew up in church, and there were certain like fundamental things about Christianity um, and about God's law that they literally were never ever taught. Uh, and her, you know, here for the first time when they're like you know, in their thirties. So you you do you really do need, to, and the Bible says that um, says it in Deuteronomy. Uh, you do need to teach kids law. So I think that's that was important for me to say um, because you know I'm, I'm talking about how powerless just you know moral education is to transform a life. Um, but if they, if if they don't know the law, they're not going to know that they're a sinner. So I just do want to say like don't feel all confused. Like okay, so am I not supposed to you know correct my kids' manners or I'm not supposed to teach my kid how to be polite or how to be kind and so on and so forth? No, teach your kids the law. That's uh, stick with that. Keep on going. Secondly. I would say, you know, in terms of like disciplining your children, and I think this starts even at a very early age, um, address both behavior and sin and discipline. Uh, so like I don't, um, on my, in my better moments, uh, in our better moments, um, you know, we do, if, you know, our child's throwing a tantrum or our child like wants to do his own thing or her own thing, you know, we'll put him in timeout and we'll, you know, and when we're talking about it, we'll say like, you can't do that. And you cannot be the boss of your own life. Like, it's mommy and daddy's job to teach you that God needs to be the boss of your life. He needs to be the king of your life. And if you decide that you're going to be your own boss, like, it is going to make for a life of misery. And we love you, and God loves you, and God, neither of us want that for for you. And so that, with that being said, we're, we're addressing, like, at the core, this is not about you, you know, stealing gummy snacks out of the pantry. At the core, this is the, at the sin level, you know, this is you wanting to go your own way. And like, you need to live under, live in a relationship where you depend on God. And you just have to kind of trust in the power of God's word and trust in the power of the gospel that, you know, when you're saying that to a three-year-old, um, or to an eight-year-old or to a 10-year-old, that, that, you know, that something is sinking in an invisible way where the Holy Spirit's at work that we're not, we don't necessarily see right then and there. Um, always proclaim the gospel and discipline. I think, um, I think, you know, when your children screw up, you always want to end, you know, end discipline, whatever it is, by reminding them, like, I love you and God loves you. Um, because it's the gospel that really changes them. It's the gospel that says, hey, like, God is a safe person that you can be, that you can trust, that you can live in dependent relationship with. So I would just say, like, when your children screw up, you always want to remind them of, of your love for them and God's love for them. Um, four, see failure and disappointment as constructive opportunity to show your child the need for Christ. I'm not going to get into that too much. I probably should have left that out. That was too much. Um, and then just let the gospel be pervasive in your home. Um, you know, this conversation about, uh, you know, God's love for broken people, God's love for people who mess up. I mean, just for that, just to be the, um, uh, that, that just to be like the rhythm of your household. It's very freeing for you. Um, uh, it's very freaky, especially when you're like me and you drop a cuss word in front of your children on Sunday morning as you're going to teach a Sunday school class. That you can say like, "Hey, look, Daddy's a sinner too, Daddy, Daddy," and you can apologize to your children. And then finally, just pray and trust. I mean, in the same way that like your kids can't change themselves, like we cannot, we can't change ourselves. Uh, Mary Beth Cunningham was really great. She's like 23 years old. She said, "Yeah, I think this terminology of role versus responsibility is like I think could be helpful in your class." I was like, "Man." really really smart for 23 <laughs> but this difference of like you're not you just as you can't be your own savior and you can't be your own lord you can't be your child's savior and you can't be your child's lord and so um that is in a lot of ways kind of scary because uh there is some comfort in thinking that we have we really can control it which we can't um but it's also really freeing 
to be it's freeing and scary at the same time. Uh, and so with that being said, you just we should really have to pray. We really have to pray and trust the Lord um, to be the one rescuing and changing our children. And so, um, and so uh, as scary as that is, uh, we can kind of live in that comfort that, you know, God loves our kids more than we do. He's a, he's a much better parent than we are. Like we're provisional parents. He's a perfect parent. And, um, and yeah, and we can, we can, as we try to do our best, as we play our role, um, we can give over the responsibility to God. So I'll pray for us. Sorry, that was so much content. It was like a fire hose. Uh, I hope it was helpful. All right, Jesus, thank, thank you so much, um, that you decide to rescue us. You decide to help us. And, um, you, you don't, you don't just leave us, um, stranded and alone, um, but you're with us. And, uh, thank you too that, uh, you've uh, revealed your, your grace and your mercy to us and that we really can trust you. And so help us to do that. Um, ugh, parenthood, so, so, so humbling, humiliating, Lord. Um, give us grace to walk in that and uh, give grace to our children um, that they would they would be humble people who um, constantly cry out for your, your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.